This morning we're going to be looking at the Reformation motto, Sola Gratia. Do you all have the sheets yet? Uh, almost. Almost? Okay, Dustin is still preparing them. I should have been here earlier to manage that. Let's open with prayer. Our Father, on this uh, Sabbath morning, we pray that you would settle our hearts and focus our attention upon your word such that we might appreciate the depth of the salvation that you have granted to us. Uh, we want to know more about it. We want to know it in all of its glory and all of its majesty. And to do so, we also need to be humble. So we pray that you would humble us before your sovereign grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sola gratia is a Reformation motto. If someone sings a song on a stage all by himself, we say that he delivers a, a solo, which means he's all alone. Right? So the Latin word sola, solo, solus, uh, has different endings, uh, means alone. And gratia is the Latin word for grace. It's in the feminine, uh, so the, the word grace is a noun that's in the feminine, so it requires the feminine form of the, uh, the adjective. So we have sola gratia, grace alone. Now what is grace? We sometimes define grace as unmerited favor. That is to say, there's no merit in it. It's entirely given to us. Okay? So to merit something means that you have to uh, perform some condition for the gift to be given. Uh, you work at a job, and um, that labor that you put into the job is rewarded with, is it a gift or is it your due? It's your due. It's your pay. You deserve that. You merit that by putting in the hours. And you get paid. Uh, grace is very different. There's no merit in grace. It's a, it's a gift entirely not dependent upon the worthiness or the merit of the uh, person to whom it's given. So we have in Scripture this, uh, this statement, which I think is the, the clearest uh, more, most far-reaching statement about sola gratia in the scriptures. Let's read it together, okay? So all together, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, you may have memorized that in a different translation. Um, but it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So what's the, the relationship between faith and salvation? We sometimes use the word the instrument of salvation. And that's a, that's a philosophical term. It's a useful term. Uh, it comes from, out of Aristotle who was a pagan philosopher, but it's a useful term that he gave us to understand how one thing interacts with another. And uh, so we, we've appropriated that word, and we said faith is the instrument of salvation. In other words, it brings about salvation. It obtains it. It attains it. 
there's a, there's a connection between the two. Uh, faith receives salvation. But in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And then he qualifies that. He wants us to be he wants us to drill down and understand very clearly what he means. This is not your own doing. In other words, this faith salvation complex, faith receiving salvation by grace, it's not your own doing. It has nothing to do with your effort, with your merits, with any attainment. It is, Paul says, a gift of God. Now, when I, I was spoiled when I was uh, uh, being raised. Uh, I'd have birthday parties, and my aunt and uncle would come over, and my grandparents would come over, and uh, other friends would come over, and they'd all bring gifts. And uh, after a while, I began, wow, I, you know, I deserve these things. And, and uh, if the gift wasn't all that nice, I was actually disappointed. I wasn't all that grateful if it was something that I didn't want. <clears throat> so I thought that I was worthy of the birthday gifts I was giving. Um, Paul says this, the gift of God, which is salvation through faith, is not a result of works. It has nothing to do with our doing, with our merit, with our attainment, with our worthiness. And the reason that we have this relationship between God's grace and salvation by faith is so that no one may <coughs> boast. So I was boasting in my own mind. I would, you'd say I was haughty or I had a vaunted uh, appreciation for myself when I, when I was anticipating the, the gifts of my grandparents and my parents and my, and my aunt and uncle. I was boasting, Right? had a high opinion of myself. They're bringing these things to me because I am most worthy. But Paul says salvation is a gift that involves no boasting. We can't boast because it is a gift from beginning to end. Now, this was involved in the Protestant Reformation because in the medieval period, uh, there was a great deal of confusion in the Roman Catholic Church in Europe about how we attain salvation. And little by little, um, a view of salvation uh, developed such that uh, human worthiness was set before God and God would reward that human worthiness with his grace. So the whole idea of the giftedness of salvation became very obscure confused and one teacher in the Roman Catholic Church would teach one thing another one would teach another thing but generally the consensus of the church was there's human merit involved that God rewards merit so that's not a gift it's something that's deserved so in the first paragraph here at the time of the reformation the Roman Catholic Church taught that one could attain salvation through a combination of faith and his or her efforts. The concept of merit uh, was used by the church to explain how God works with people. If God is absolutely just, then he must uh, reward human effort. 
But people cannot offer to God perfect works, so they need divine grace. Salvation, then, in Catholicism requires both divine grace and human merit. It's a cooperative arrangement. A little effort by the sinner is rewarded by God with the gift of his grace. In Catholic theology, in order to remain in a state of grace, Catholics are taught to perform works which merit salvation. Merit in Roman Catholic theology means something deserved by virtue of fulfilling a certain condition or by virtue of performing an act. These saving works are said to be condign merit, a cooperation with grace, where God has found himself to reward the person for work that he accomplishes with the help of the Holy Spirit. However, even though Catholics insist that God's rewards always immeasurably exceed the intrinsic value of their own merits, isn't this still a work for which they're being rewarded? So the idea is the, the sinner <clears throat> reaches out to God by his own effort, and then God gives an abundant grace that enables the sinner to, to continue and to, uh, to merit salvation. God rewards his gift of grace, but it's still the sinner who's involved in performing some sort of uh, act or, or effort that God then rewards. Now, I grew up in that system of Roman Catholic theology, and so I felt that I really had to merit something before God. I didn't understand grace at all. Uh, so what happens in a system like this is you concentrate on your own efforts. How can I be a better person so that God will reward me with his grace? It's a very frustrating system because if you think in that way and then reflect upon your sin, you realize, boy, I, I just haven't performed the way I wanted to perform. I failed. And I've got to start all over again. Uh, to get some degree of grace. Any reflection? Some of you were, were raised in the Roman Catholic uh, system. And how, how, do you, how did you look at that Same before way. you came to faith? Same way. And I, yeah, I needed to put forth effort. And you were constantly saying, okay, you sin every single day. Some sins are going to send you to purgatory. Sins are going to send you to hell. Every Saturday you should go to confession. And confess your sins, and then you go, oh my gosh, I'm afraid to go in there, and I think the priest is going to know who I am, and if I tell him I did this, and so it almost became a, a tug of war between going and confessing, and then being fearful, because you were going to go confess to a man who was, I mean, so... I couldn't even figure out what my sins were, <laughs> and I was lining up for confession, so I would think, well, I, I was chewing gum or something. <laughs> Make it up. You'd have I, to lie. I, I didn't even understand. <laughs> <laughs> Make up a sin. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you've just heard from people who grew up in that, that kind of system and, and the difficulty uh, that that presents uh, to human beings uh, in terms of understanding what God requires for salvation. Now, the Protestant reformers, reading the Apostle Paul's letters challenged this cooperative understanding of human merit. The sinner was helpless and needed God's grace. At no point could a sinner merit 
God's grace. Salvation was entirely, now I, I put these words together, entirely, completely, and totally by God's grace. Hence the motto, sola gratia. Martin Luther saw this clearly and explained. So here's a quote from Luther. Could, could someone read that for us? It comes from uh, Luther's work, The, the Bondage of Will. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, device, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. Okay. Now, Luther discovered this while he was a monk. Okay, do, you, do you know what a monk is? Okay, yes. a monk is a, a man who devotes himself to God and he takes vows in the Catholic Church, vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. So he takes these three vows and he lives in a community of other monks and they have certain work that they do. Uh, many monks would, would uh, copy uh, manuscripts. Others would work on farms and, and uh, in some places in France they made great wine. Um, some of the monasteries were very wealthy and so it wasn't so much that these monks were totally deprived of creature comforts, um, but, but they worked together and, um, and they spent a great deal of time in prayer, in singing the Psalms, reading scripture, so forth. But they were working in this system of merit and um, earned merit and Catholicism. So Luther was in a monastery with other monks. And here, here are men who were intent on serving God and uh, thinking that they were earning their salvation, meriting it. Uh, but Luther was able to see in himself that he was constantly a sinner, always in need of great grace from God. So he would confess his sins to a, a father confessor, and uh, sometimes it would be hours. Uh, so he would weary his father confessor because Luther was scrutinizing uh, all the sins in his soul, and he would do this every day. And so he was wearying uh, these people in the monastery. Yes, Kelly? So isn't that the same concept? I mean, you think of the, uh, a monk or a priest and a, or a nun, almost in a sense earning additional merit by living a, a life of austerity, by giving those things up. I was just, you were brought back to me as a kid. On Fridays, Catholics weren't allowed to eat meat. And we were supposed to abstain, but we had fish. So I don't know, maybe mackerel snappers, I think that's a term they use for Catholic or something. But we were told if you abstain from meat, you were adding blessing. And if you didn't, you that was a, a very serious, serious sin. And you'd have to go and confess it that you ate meat. And then they threw it away after a while. I guess the priest said, no, I like meat. And they changed that rule. So it was kind of crazy. Yeah. You remember, did you grow up in that where you could not yes. eat meat on Fridays? Imagine my trauma when I was serving at a banquet and the priest wanted mincemeat pie on Friday. Oh, what am right. I to do? To give him mincemeat pie? It's Friday. Did <laughs> <laughs> you get his sin and your sin both? Really? Yeah. <laughs> you can't have this, Father. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't reflect much on that. It just was 
something my family did, and the, the public school system always served fish for lunch for the Catholics. on Friday for the Catholics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody ate fish. Well, so, yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't good fish. It was fish sticks, you know, some kind of a cheap fish. Um, so Luther lived in, in that kind of system, very burdened by his sins. And um, he understood that God was a holy God, and he was the object of God's wrath. And so he was tortured in, in his soul. Uh, as he thought about uh, the requirements of God for eternal salvation. Um, now, his, um, the leader of his monastery said, Luther, you need to study the scriptures. You're tortured and you can find comfort in the scriptures somewhere. So Luther uh, turned his attention to the Bible and began to prepare to become a, uh, a doctor of biblical studies uh, in the Catholic Church. And so he, um, he read the book of Psalms, and he found comfort in Psalms. And then he turned to the epistles of Paul. And um, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans were confusing to him because he was approaching it with this system of merit. And he couldn't make sense of Paul's words. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the book of Galatians in its entirety, um, these were mysteries to Paul and, and uh, to Luther, and they had a breakthrough. And uh, as he studied the epistles of Paul, he suddenly had a breakthrough that salvation was entirely by the grace of God through the instrument of faith. And then he read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and that faith is actually a gift from God. So from beginning to end, the salvation, as Luther discovered, was authored by God from beginning to end. Now, I found this uh, article in Table Talk magazine, and so I printed part of it here for you. Um, you know, you come across something like this, and well, you know, I can summarize it, and then it's my words. No, it's not my words. It's their words. So I'll give credit to uh, uh, Ligonier Ministries and Table Talk magazine. Sola gratia is not... Grace alone, mostly. Okay? In other words, sola gratia doesn't mean that God has accomplished most of the work for our salvation, but there remains a little bit that we need to contribute. God's grace does not bring us into a state which enables a neutral human response. To do so would put human works in the driver's seat, since our salvation would then ultimately depend on human action. So many evangelicals, uh, and we consider them brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, they don't have a view of grace alone. Uh, they move back to the Roman Catholic view of grace given if someone merits it. And so if you, uh, if you make the first step toward God, then he will reward you with grace. If you say the sinner's prayer, then you have come into a situation of merit. God is uh, obligated to grant you salvation if you say the sinner's prayer. Okay, so it's that kind of conception. We take the first step. God responds to us by then loading us with his saving grace. Yes, Katie. So, 
so Luther turned to scripture as sort of a comfort and he developed these ideas. So what do you know about when he looks at something like James? Because if I'm correct, isn't like he, during the canonization of scripture, like he actually wanted to take out James because he didn't feel as if it didn't line up with the rest of those ideas. Do you know more about that? Or? Yeah, yeah, of course. That is that is the uh, that's the book of the Bible that Catholics will raise yeah. as over against the Catholic understanding of or a Protestant understanding of sola gratia, grace alone. Yeah. And they'll say, well, works have to come into it some somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're obviously glad it didn't work out that he didn't, you know. Yeah. The rest of the group was like, no, we're going to keep James, you know. But. Um, mm-hmm. I think the uh, what I didn't uh, print here is uh, the tenth verse of Ephesians chapter two, and if we go there, we're going to see that Paul continues his thought about grace alone, and he says, uh, "For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." So the Protestant conception, which I think is the biblical conception of the relationship between faith and works, is that God saves us for good works. So we're not saved by good works as an instrument of salvation. We're saved for good works. And when, when we take that understanding to James, we find that James is saying works are essential um, but he, I don't think he conflicts with Paul in saying that, that works uh, precede salvation. They, right. they flow from salvation. And they're absolutely essential. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not saved without good works. We're saved for good works. Yeah. No, I'm just wondering if that was like remedied in Luther's life before his passing. You know, because mm-hmm. he, you know, he didn't feel as though it was congruent with the rest of Scripture. So during the canonization, he wanted to take James out. But the rest of the group's like, no, we should probably. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can speak a little bit to that because that, that, I, I do think that, that concept is, there's a lot of mythology with that. One of the first investments I made was I bought all of Luther's collected sermons. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that surprised me is about how, how many times he quoted James. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that has developed that James, that he wanted James taken out of the I just didn't see any evidence of that because he seemed to quote James a lot in his sermons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think there's some there's some mythology in this yeah. in this idea of him wanting to. He may have. I mean, he. You know how it was with words. He could be kind of caustic. Yeah. And, and there's no doubt that he might have said something like that in a letter or something like that. But it seems like in practice, as a preacher, he quoted James quite often. When it was applicable, yeah. Well, somewhere along the line, in one of his writings, or maybe it was in his collected uh, conversations, and uh, he had a, a book published by one of his students called Table, Luther's Table Talk. I think that's the title of it. He may have dropped the statement that James is an epistle of straw. You know, and there was a lot of beer drinking during those conversations. Too. <laughs> yeah. So someone, so it wasn't in a like a systematic theology book. It was just some off statement by Luther where he, uh, and I think that, you know coming 
coming after his uh, experience of God's grace, uh, he reads the book of James and it's, it's, it's a letdown. Because <laughs> okay. he doesn't see the, the emphasis on grace as much in James as he does in the Apostle Paul but it, and in, Peter. In practice, he seemed to use James as a minister of the gospel. Yeah. And so he may have had this personal thought, but when it came to teaching and preaching, he used James. It's not like you read it out. Yeah. 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 Oh, Good. Yeah. So look at the next one. Sola gratia doesn't mean that God has accomplished salvation objectively, but not subjectively. To put it another way, Sola gratia doesn't teach us that Christ purchased salvation separate from salvation for you. Redemption is always particular and personal. To deny this is a pious way of smuggling human works into salvation. Salvation in Scripture is not the purchase of a thing, but the redemption of a particular people. So in some evangelical thought, the idea is Christ has purchased salvation. Now you have to get it. Okay? Yeah, I hear that. So you it's see how that's on the shelf, like when you're shopping. Yeah. You just pick salvation and then it's a thing that Christ yeah. has has accomplished for us and now it's yeah. up to us to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So that smuggles human works <coughs> into the process, right? You see how, how that uh, how that concept um, brings works to bear. A sola gratia doesn't mean that only part of salvation comes from grace alone. Some Christians believe that people come to Christ by their own free choice and then God sovereignly preserves them in the faith. Others argue that Christians are sovereignly drawn to the faith but they can lose their salvation at a later point. In both cases, we have inadvertently smuggled human works into salvation. If a human choice, whether before or after conversion is the determining factor for salvation, then salvation is fundamentally a result of human effort, that is, works. So what does sola gratia mean? God has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. Salvation is not an abstract action, but a gracious redemption accomplished for you. From all eternity, the triune God agreed in covenant to save a people for himself. The Father chose to elect a people for the Son. The Son agreed to merit salvation for that people. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation to that people. In this way, salvation uh, was decreed concerning you, earned for you, and applied to you. Do you see how this is uh, you know, intensely personal? Um, it's a, re a redemption that God has provided for you personally, not a thing, not some sort of abstract thing outside of you, uh, but something that he has done in you and for you, and he brings you to eternal salvation. Now, some of these verses are, are very significant, and I'd encourage you to look up <clears throat> uh, the verses that are provided there. Brian? So, Yes. I had a question. So, in reflecting on, as I, you know, I came to faith as through the Arminian system, belief system that I made the choice. <laughs> yeah, I went down and came to Paul. But, but now my understanding as a Reformed 
believer is that obviously I was divinely appointed and I was there. It was God's divine choosing, his sovereignty. Is that the Arminian's position, and I think it mentioned that kind of that, that kernel of Catholicism that brings in that element that says God is sovereign over everything except my coming to salvation. I am part of that equation, and don't you ever take that away from me, because I've had dear brothers and sisters who argue, they said, you are wrong, we, that is, we uh, we made that decision, and I just, and, and yeah, I'm not going to argue, I'm not going to clobber them, but my point is I said, okay, we, we have a different understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in that situation. Is that 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 when they talk about that Catholicism that kind of creeped into the, the church outside of the Catholic churches, is that what we're dealing with with Arminianism? Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, similarly, I came to faith in Christ. Um, the gospel was explained to me, and then at the end of that gospel presentation, uh, you have a choice. And uh, would you like to pray to receive Christ as your Savior? Um, and so I was brought to this uh, decision, so to speak, and uh, I valued that decision very highly. So in a testimony that I gave maybe a year after coming to faith, I stood in, in front of a Reformed church in western Michigan. I was visiting there, and I was asked to give a testimony and I said something like, I'm so glad I chose Jesus as my Savior. <laughs> and a couple years later, it hit me. Oh, how wrong I was. <clears throat> and um, I've been tempted to think that I'd like to write a letter back to that church <laughs> saying, I'm so sorry I misrepresented my salvation to you. Yes? You know, the big eye-opener for me was John 6:44 that nobody comes to the Son unless the Father leads them. Yes. And the thing is, though, that um, it says somewhere else, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So it, it, they're both true, right? It's yep. not that you yep. didn't choose. It was just that God led you to choose. Right? Yep. For by grace are you saved through faith, through, through believing. So believing is something that we do, but even that is a gift from God. And so we sometimes reflect too much on the faith that saves us and not realize that it's connected to the grace that gives to us the gift of faith. Let's proceed. I, we don't have a lot of time. Um, let's go to the, uh, the last page. How can it be said that faith is a gift from God? So, the spiritually dead sinner has no faith. Let's read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Could someone read that for us? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. I can. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and more by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That last phrase, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, that's offensive, isn't it? To think that I, I was a child of wrath. 
Um, that's not how we like to think of ourselves apart from Christ. A child of wrath, deserving uh, the eternal uh, displeasure and condemnation of God. So he says that we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we, well, you once walked, we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So what was our condition prior to coming to faith in Christ? Dead. We were dead. <laughs> now, we, we weren't almost dead, sort of a floating, <laughs> floating on the, uh, the surface of the water, and God sends out a, 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 a life ring to us on a rope, and all we have to do is just reach out and, and get it. Uh, rather, we need to picture ourselves as at the bottom of the ocean, dead, with no ability, no capability of reaching out to God. So we were dead, which refers to our inability to reach out to God. Absolutely. Spiritually dead. Absolutely. So Paul <laughs> nails this down in Romans 3. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, there was a time prior to coming to Christ where I became interested in the gospel, and I started reading the New Testament. Uh, and so, in some sense, it, it, it appeared to me that I was seeking God. Um, but even that was given to me by God. God was working in me, drawing me to, to faith in Christ. Um, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if something is spiritually discerned uh, to be understood, what is required? What is required to understand the scriptures and the way of salvation? The intervention of the Holy Spirit. The, the illumination. Yeah, spiritually discerned. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has to be involved. In the, in the life of the sinner, bringing him to an understanding of the gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how about the human will? Does it work? Not to our benefit. No. It participates. Yeah. Human will to participates in that acceptance of God's appointment of us yeah. coming to Him. So, to some extent, we have a free will to do everything that is within our fallen nature. We can choose to sin, yes. right? So, Luther's work, the bondage of the will, uh, is, is, he's saying that the will is bound to the human nature that has fallen, and so we we choose to do all all kinds of sin. Um, but we don't have a human will to reach out to God uh, because we don't understand the gospel. And uh, as Paul says, we were following the course of this world. We were culturally impressionable. And what is the culture like? It's a rebellion. So our rebellion as sinners uh, is that we follow the course of the world. Right? Um, so you're, you're a... Uh, you're swimming against the culture because of the grace of God. But before the grace of God came to you, you were following the culture. 
following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's in work of the sons of disobedience. You were following the devil. Um, so, where in the Bible does it say that faith is a gift of God? We have three minutes. Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. Uh, Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. All faith within uh, the one who believes was authored by Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.29 says it's been granted unto us to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 3.16, all faith in Christ is faith that has come from and through Christ. So all faith in Christ originates in Christ himself. He must grant this faith, and he grants it to those who have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. And 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, um, says that faith must be given. Now, You'll have some uh, evangelical believers who will come to you and say that uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 does not mean that faith is a gift. They would say salvation is the gift, and we receive it uh, uh, by Salvation is the gift, we receive it by faith. So they deny that faith is a gift. But when we look at, the, uh, when we look at that, are you familiar with the word antecedent? Antecedent is something that comes before. So you have, uh, for instance, uh, it moved. Okay, simple sentence, two words, it moved. Now we have to ask, what is the antecedent to it so we can understand what it means when we say it moved? And uh, so we look ahead in the sentence and we say, oh, it's the, uh, it's the horse that moved. Right, so the author's talking about a horse, and then he says it moved, and we understand it uh, by the it that it has to do with the horse that precedes it. You, you get that certainly. So similarly, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift? Well, the closest noun is the noun faith. You see, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We take out that little section, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So what is the gift of God? It is faith. Now some would say it's salvation through faith, and we can agree with that, but it's still faith that is a part of that gift. Um, So the antecedent to gift is actually faith. The closest antecedent is not grace, it's actually faith. Both grace and faith are not of yourself. So the glory of the gospel is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Not only does God provide the salvation, he also provides the faith to believe in this, so great salvation. So faith must be given before anyone can call on the name of the Lord. And we have this uh, statement in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verse 16. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace alone. Any other comments? I just think it's interesting that they would argue that faith... God gave us grace, but not faith, so that they could boast. 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's that's the natural human condition. We we want to we want to think highly of ourselves and those that we have had the wisdom to turn to God rather than God turned us to Himself. Any other comments? Okay, we need to close with prayer and put the chairs away. (laughs) Our Heavenly Father, thank you for salvation that is entirely by your grace. It's grace alone that has saved us. We know that when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We sing that and we confess that you are the author of our salvation from beginning to end, and we give you the praise and glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.